to open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 5. This morning we will give attention to verses 1 through 17, this first narrative that John confronts us with in chapter 5. One of the things we're going to, to encounter right off in the narrative, the story that we come across this morning in John chapter 5, is we're going to be confronted with, with, with the awful, uh, disgusting presence of human pride. If there's anything that the Bible paints as kind of a scourge on humanity, it's the issue of, of pride, particularly the kind of pride that manifests itself in spiritual life. We could call it spiritual pride, also known as a spiritual arrogance. I think that there are, uh, there are few things that God despises more than spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance. It's, it's, this, it's an attitude that begins to take root in the heart. It's this attitude that maybe uh, comes at us in sort of small ways and then begins to grow and develop within us if it goes unchecked. And it ultimately can corrupt the whole, the whole life. It can corrupt our whole attitude. It can corrupt um, the ways we interact with other people. It can corrupt the way we think. It corrupts the way we evaluate circumstances and events and people. It even corrupts the way we evaluate what we believe. It causes us to believe we're spiritual giants. In fact, when we are... Uh, but babes, uh, it, it is a scourge. It is a scourge that, that does nothing positive and does everything to destroy. The spiritual pride, spiritual arrogance. And I believe God hates this with a particular passion. And the reason I think God hates it with a particular passion is because Jesus in the Gospels confronts it with a particular passion. And that seems to indicate to me how God feels about this matter. Uh, when we, we're walking through John's Gospel, so we're getting a close-up glimpse of the ministry of Jesus. And we're, we're getting to see him interact with a variety of different kinds of people. And what we've found thus far, at least in John's Gospel, is, is consistent with what we see in the other gospel, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is that Jesus tends to be particularly patient and kind to people who are lost. To people who look at themselves in the mirror and realize that they are sinners who don't know God and who aren't in right relationship with Him. Jesus approaches that kind of a person typically with great kindness and with great generosity and with great compassion and, 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 and deals with them on a human level. But if there's one category of human being that Christ comes at uh, markedly without kindness and generosity and, um, uh, and grace, if you will, it's people who are marked by spiritual arrogance. It's people who are, who are inflated with spiritual pride. He comes at them not with kindness and gentleness, but He comes at them swinging a hammer, if you will, verbally. He comes right at them. And the poster children for this kind of an attitude in the New Testament are the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were contemporaries with Jesus in the times in which He walked in the first century. And we are going to be confronted with them in this text and we are going to see them as being sort of living and vivid examples of spiritual arrogance and spiritual pride. And the challenge for us this morning is going to be to walk through this story that, that John gives us to be able to expose this, this, this issue of spiritual pride and arrogance in the lives of these religious leaders and then kind of put ourselves in the mirror and look and compare to them and ask the question, do we display these characteristics in our lives? When others look at us and they, they watch how we evaluate circumstances, do they see these, these marks of spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance? And if so, uh, we pray this morning that God would draw us to repentance. 
and that we would be motivated beyond motivation to destroy and work to destroy that, that, that root in our lives if it be there. Uh, secondary to that issue is, is a remarkable miracle. It's a remarkable miracle, one of the coolest miracles that we see Jesus do, and uh, we'll kind of play that out uh, along the way. So you've got these dual themes playing out in this text, this issue of spiritual pride and arrogance kind of weaving its way through the power and the sovereignty and the glory of Jesus at the same time. And let me just make a quick note here. Um, like we saw last week in, in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we've got a parallel that's running. And this happens often in these miracle narratives. You've got this parallel, two issues that are kind of playing side by side. You've got the, you've got the physical realm, and this narrative tells us what happens kind of on the human level, the physical level. But that's never really the point in and of itself, because there's always a parallel spiritual issue that's being described and illustrated for us at the same time. So think of it as two train tracks that are kind of running parallel, the physical reality and then the spiritual reality. And keep that in the back of your mind as we navigate our way through this text. And so we get this look at spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance and, and Jesus' utter contempt for that kind of thing. And, you know, spiritual pride and arrogance shows up uh, in, in one particular sort of manifestation called legalism. Are you familiar with this term legalism? Um, even if you don't know the, the technical term, I'm quite sure you've encountered it in somebody or in a group of somebodies at some point in your life. Chuck Swindoll gives a great definition for what is legalism. He says it this way. He says, legalism is the establishment of standards carefully selected by people for the purpose of celebrating human achievement under the guise of pleasing God. It's kind of wordy, so let's walk through it again. It's the the establishment of standards that are carefully selected by people for the purpose of celebrating human achievement, but under the guise of doing what? Pleasing God. It's a great descriptive of what legalism is. Legalism is the act by which we go around setting up all of these religious standards that we hold everybody else to under the guise of pleasing God, but in reality what we're actually doing is is elevating human achievement. And typically when you see legalism, the people who are holding up the standards take some particular pride in seeing other people fall short while they can exalt themselves at how well they keep the standard. You see how that works? It's called legalism. It's alive and well in Jesus' day. It is raging and well in our day. Swinnell goes on to say that legalism is a righteousness as defined by human beings, although those who give the definition frequently cite God as the source for the standards. You see it? So it's, it's a human standard uh, attributed to God. People make up the rules. They make up the list of do's and don'ts, and then they push them upon everybody else saying these are God's rules and God's standards and God's do's and don'ts and try to enforce them as such. Legalism is based on, it's based on lists, the do's and don'ts. You know, there's all these do's and all these don'ts. And, and if you want to be right with God, you do the do's and you don't the don'ts. And that's kind of how it works. And if you keep every item on the list of do's and don'ts, then the, the result is you're acceptable before God and you, you deserve the approval and praise of others. And, and the other side of that is, if you don't keep the standard, if you don't keep up the list of do's and don'ts, then you don't deserve the favor of God, nor the approval of anyone else. And of course, um, legalists always know how God judges, and they're more than happy to uh, be the enforcer on his behalf typically 
self-appointed. Legalism shows up uh, kind of under, under, the, under the guise and in, in the garb of, of religious dress on the outside. Um, it, it often has the credentials of religious associations or churches or groups that kind of come along behind it and beside it. And they use those religious sort of trappings and verbiage and so forth uh, to convince other people that their own agendas are actually God's. You see, that's what legalism does. And that's how legalism shows up. And it is a grave, grave evil that plagues the church. Has plagued it throughout its history, plagues it in our day. It is vile and it is evil because it, it absolutely in every sense denies the grace of God. And it presumes to earn his favor through doing good works. And that's the exact opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It elevates man-made righteousness it demotes the grace of God. And the only results that come from legalism or trying to operate in this environment of legalism are really one of two poles. You either end up prideful because you look at yourself and you judge yourself as being successful at keeping the do's and not doing the don'ts. Or you end up in depression on the other side because you look at the list and you see how woefully short you fall of it. It's about the only two possible outcomes. So this, this thing called legalism, what it actually does is it produces in people the things that the Lord detests the most. The exact opposite of what the grace of God is intended to produce in people. And that's why it is vile, and that's why it should not be taken lightly, and that's why Jesus totally comes at this issue with, with, with power and with authority and confronts it head on and challenges the people who perpetrate it and, and, and propagate it and has absolutely no tolerance for it whatsoever. And that should be a, a clue to us how we should approach this and how we should look at our own lives and how we should be vigilant in our own lives to make sure that this is not creeping up in the way we behave and act and think and deal. And we're going to see it come alive and well off the page this morning in this narrative in John chapter 5. So let's look at the text and just kind of work our way through it and, um, and be looking for the signs of this legalism, of this legalism produced by spiritual arrogance as we work our way through the text. Verses 1 through 5, uh, we get kind of the situation or the setting. John tells us this. He says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep's Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed uh, colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So here's the setup. Here's the situation that John wants us to evaluate. Um, if you think of it as a movie, uh, the camera is taking us to a new location from chapter 4. In chapter 4, we were in Galilee, and we were kind of getting a miracle that was happening in the, the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Uh, a lot of other things took place in Galilee that John did not report for us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us lots of things that Jesus did in Galilee. John is not concerned particularly with reporting those things because, why? 
Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already reported them by the time John wrote, so there's no, no sense in doing this again. So he gives us one excerpt from that part of his ministry, and now in chapter 5, he moves us right ahead back to Jerusalem. So the camera moves from Galilee back to Jerusalem, and, and, and he tells us that the timing of all this is during uh, a feast of the Jews. Now, John is particularly usually concerned with the feast of the Jews, and he normally names what feast it is. In this case, he doesn't tell us. So apparently, it's incidental to this particular narrative. And it's, it's interesting to note that uh, Jesus was a Jewish man. And I love these pictures of him that I used to see when I was a kid, where he looks like a lily-white uh, European male. That is not, Jesus was a Jewish man. You know this, right? Um, and he behaved uh, under Judaism. And even though the religious system of his day was utterly corrupt, he still obeyed the, the command of the Lord and went to the temple and worshipped God there and observed the feast. And Jesus was, John tells us, in Jerusalem for that very purpose in this uh, particular context. And so the camera moves us from Galilee to Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem in whole. It begins to, to kind of focus us in on a particular location in Jerusalem, a place that he identifies as Bethesda or a pool uh, that's near the Sheep's Gate. Now, the Sheep's Gate doesn't, uh, that John mentions here, doesn't exist anymore today. There is no Sheep's Gate. Uh, It seems that at the time of John's writing, this would have been outside the city walls. The location today you can go to is inside the city walls, and it's kind of just inside, I believe it's the King's Gate, if I'm not mistaken. But I went to had a, ch- ch- a chance to go to Israel a few years ago with some of you. And uh, this is one of the locations that we were able to visit. You could go there yourself anytime you'd like. And I've got a couple of pictures I want to show you just to give you a sense for this location. This is kind of a, a, a rebuilding of the, the scene. The Pool of Bethesda would have looked like that scenario there in the middle. It was two pools side by side that were fed by some springs. And, we're, you know, you needed water in Judaism all the time, right? Why did you need water all the time? I mean, for heaven's sakes, I mean, it's a hot place for one thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, there was all these ceremonial cleansings and you had to wash and do all this all the time. So you needed water around and these pools were there, uh, presumably for some of those purposes. So it would have looked about like that perhaps in Jesus' day. Probably a pretty beautiful place. Uh, if you go there today and you go to look at the excavation of the site, uh, you get to see things like this. Um, pictures that, that, you know... Uh, where they've excavated down multiple levels of history and uh, drilled down to the level at which this pool would have been in Jesus' day, far below the the, uh, the average um, uh, surface level where you would walk today. Uh, why is that? Well, it's because over the centuries, um, what's happened is all sorts of things have been built over the top of this site, this particular site where these pools were located, had a, a ton of things uh, built over the top of them. Uh, in fact, uh, early on, the Romans built a temple there uh, that was dedicated to Asclepius, who was a, a Greek god of healing. That was built over the top of this location. And later on in the 5th century, there was a, a Byzantine church that was built on the same place. It was dedicated to the Virgin Mary. That particular place was destroyed in 1009 by a caliph that came through. Uh, then in the 12th century, uh, the Crusaders came through and they built what was known as the Church of the Paralytic over the top of this site. Uh, and so on and so forth. So you can see over the centuries, these things just get built on top of each other. So when you go there, it's pretty awesome to go back and look and see how archaeologists have, have, have kind of dug back down through all these layers. And um, as you walk around this site, you can see some colored placards throughout. You can see a yellow one sort of up at the top and a blue one in the middle that kind of mark the different levels and point out what was built at 
what particular period in history. Uh, but they've gone all the way back down to the level at which these pools actually would have existed in the first century. And it's one of the few places that you can go in Israel right now and walk around and actually feel a, a very strong sense of confidence that you're actually walking in a place where Jesus himself set foot uh, on the actual ground. So this is a, a pretty interesting place to go visit if you ever have a chance to go to Israel and see it. And this is the, the place that John uh, draws our attention to, these, these pools that are in this city. And he points to us this, this location, and he picks, paints a picture of, of this remarkably sad scene that plays out around these, these pools, these beautiful pools. Did you notice what was around the pools? It was literally a multitude of invalids. A multitude of people who were, were diseased, who were sick, who were, who were desperate, who, um, uh, who, who had unsolvable problems, if you will. And what, what makes it even worse than just the, the pathetic scene of all of these sick people is that all of these sick and desperate people have believed a sort of a local superstition about these pools. They, these pools apparently uh, at various intervals bubbled up from the spring that fed them. And there was a superstition, this mystical superstition, that these waters in the pools were magical. And every time that they bubbled, that what was happening was an angel was coming and stirring the waters. And the first person that could get into the water after the bubbles came up would be miraculously healed from whatever their infirmity was. Think about the sad nature of that, uh, of that location. I mean, a multitude of desperate, sick, sad folks who are sitting by this water just desperately waiting for the bubbles to appear, hoping beyond hope that they could be the first one to touch the water so that they could get healed. And imagine the multitudes of them every time walking away disappointed and thinking, well, maybe next time, maybe next time, watching for the bubbles again. Sick and desperate people believing in mystical things for their hope, always having their hopes dashed every time. Sad, isn't it? It's really a pathetic scene. It's not the kind of scene you'd want to go visit if you were walking around in the day. Now, um, let me just make a quick textual note here. If you have your Bible uh, and, and you're reading the text, did you, the text, did you notice anything when you got to verse 3? Look at your Bible if you have it. It goes from verse 3, and then what's next? What's missing? Did you notice that? There's no verse 4 in your Bible, probably, unless you have a King James Bible. You may have a... You have, anybody got a King James Bible? Do you have a verse 4? Okay, you have a verse 4. So why is this? Um... Uh, let me just summarize this real quickly. Um, the oldest and best manuscripts we have in the New Testament do not include the text of verse 4. Um, the best we can tell from history and the history of the text, of studying the text of Scripture and dealing with the, 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 the literally thousands upon thousands of, of manuscripts that we have from various centuries, is apparently what happened is John did not record for us what's in verse 4. By the way, the text of verse 4, if you don't have it in your Bible, um, I think I can put it up on the screen for you. Um, it, it's this thing about the angel coming down and stirring the pool and all of this. Um, this apparently was not in John's report. John did not write this text. What had happened is apparently, you know, early on, uh, the Bible, you, you can throw it on a Xerox machine or a, or a printer or something and copy the thing. Uh, how did the Bible get transmitted? Okay, it had scribes that, that literally sat down and copied from one to the next. And apparently at some point throughout the history, uh, a scribe put a marginal note over on the side to help explain why 
this man was having the problem he was and why these multitudes were there. Um, there was this local superstition that this was going on. And so the scribe apparently at some point thought that this would be helpful for people to know to explain the context of why all these sick, pe- sick people were around the pool. So he included it in the margin. And over the years, as scribes continued to, uh, to transmit the text, uh, what ended up happening is that it worked its way into the text to where it became an additional verse. We know that from the study of the text. We can work our way back and find that it was not there in the oldest and the earliest manuscripts. And so um, that's why you don't have the verse. Uh, depending on your translation, you may have a footnote that tells you at the bottom, look at the bottom, you know, and it'll say some manuscripts may have this included. Um, and so just a quick note in case you're wondering what verse 4 was doing. It was on vacation or something. Um, or they missed it in your Bible. You're going to take it back to the bookstore. Um, don't do that. And so this is what's going on. So at least from this little note, we know that there was this local superstition. And that's probably what these folks have believed and why they're hanging around this pool and what they're hoping for when they get there. And you say, well, why would, I mean, how do you believe something like that? You believe that there's magic water and it's going to bubble and you're going to touch it and you're going to be miraculous. I mean, it just seems bizarre. Why would, why would people do this? I mean, the simple answer is when a person is desperate and a person is hopeless, you will latch on to anything that gives you a shred of hope. Why is it that people flood to a Benny Hinn crusade today? For the same reason in often cases. Why is it that people will look at TV and they'll give their last $10 to somebody who promises to send them some miracle prayer cloth that will help them have some miracle in their life? It's because they're desperate and they're hopeless. And they'll latch on to anything that they think might give them a chance. And that's what these people were doing. And, and it's also interesting, you know, these people are religious, societal outcasts. These people are outcasts. The people who are hanging around this pool, uh, really, apart from maybe some family members, if they have some, nobody cares about them. They're outcasts, society-wise, religiously. Because the prevailing thought in the religious society of the day was, if you were in that kind of shape, you must be a horrible sinner for God to judge you with that kind of an illness or an ailment. That was the prevailing religious thought of the day. If you, I mean, if you were an invalid, if you were lame, if you were blind, if you, if you had those kinds of, of limitations, uh, clearly it had to be because you were some sort of a horrible sinner and God was judging you in your body because of that. And because you were such a horrible sinner, we would never want as religious people to associate with you. And so they were cast out. No religious leader of the day would have been caught dead talking to this man or anybody else around that pool. They would have been caught dead walking into where this scene takes place, much less speaking to them. And I'll just simply say at this point that it is really, really a sad scenario when desperate people find more empathy among pagans than they do among God's people. That's a sad thing. It was true in Jesus' day, and sadly, it is true in ours. Sadly, we, we, we live in a culture that is often populated with people just like this, maybe not in the physical sense, but certainly emotionally, spiritually. They're just as desperate and just as hopeless, and they encounter God's people quite often, and they find the exact opposite of empathy and compassion. They often find judgmentalism, legalism, and the things that we're going to see uh, in this text that are just so offensive. And we need to be careful of that. And so John zooms us into this pool in Jerusalem, but he's not content to just zoom us in there. He takes us even closer to one particular man who's in the mob around this pool. And he tells us something about this one desperate man. What was the one note we have about this guy? 38 years. That's what we know. 
38 years, he's had this problem. He clearly can't move. Whatever his problem is, we're not told specifically. It's some sort of paralysis, some sort of a physical inhibition that allows him not to be able to move. That's why he's been 38 years in the problem. Uh, That's why he thinks he's not been healed, because every time the water bubbles, his infirmity slows him down, and he's not able to be, in his mind, what? The first one in the water to get there. So he's in this terrible desperate, pathetic sort of shape. Here he is, right on the edge of what could possibly be his healing, but every time he can't get there fast enough. So for 38 years, the sad fella has been perhaps sitting there and uh, looking for his miracle. And I'll tell you, when we meet this man, he's a sad and pathetic case. And when we leave him in a little while, he's an even more sad and pathetic case. As this narrative starts to unfold, by the way, here's a spoiler alert. We're going to find this man is no hero. He's no hero. He turns out to be quite a piece of work. But he becomes the focal point of the narrative. And then John tells us what happens. Jesus walks in on this, on this scene, this pool, all of these people believing this, this, this superstition. And he comes to this man. And in verse 6, we, we, we get a sense for the miracle that happens. Listen to what John tells us. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another one steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Amazing, isn't it? Just on the surface, it's amazing. Here comes Jesus, God incarnate, walking into a place where no religious leader would ever walk, speaking to a human being that no religious leader of his day would ever speak to. And and everything that Jesus does in in these three verses defies all of the stupid, man-made, legalistic rules that have been made up and enforced on the people of God in Jesus' day. Everything he does flies in the face of all of that. He chooses to go to this pool. He didn't just stumble upon it. He goes there intentionally. He finds this man intentionally. He talks to him intentionally. He heals him on purpose. He didn't have to go there. He chose to. And he went there for the same reason he went through Samaria to meet a woman who was sitting by a well because he had a divine appointment. And he sees this man lying there. He knows his history. He knows how long he's been there. We don't know how he knows. Maybe somebody told him. Maybe just in his divine omniscience he knew it. John's already told us that Jesus knows all men. He knows what's in men. So he could know these things. Whatever the case is, he knew it. He walks up and he speaks to him. And he says to him the most remarkable thing. Do you want to be healed? That just seems like a dumb question on the surface, doesn't it? man 38 years sitting by a pool hoping to be healed. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? It's the first question. Thing that comes out of his mouth that John reports. It seems like an odd question, but William Barclay says this. He says, The first essential towards receiving the power of Jesus is the intense desire for it. Jesus comes to us and he says, Do you really want to be changed? If in our inmost hearts we are well content to stay the way we are, there could be no change for us. The desire for better things must be surging in our hearts. That is to say, There's got to be some level of desire at the surface to want to be healed. You know, some people are afflicted and they're perfectly content in their affliction. 
Some people have problems and they just like to complain about them. They just like to commiserate in their problems. They don't really interesting actually want help. They're not really interested in somebody helping them. They just they just like they like the sympathy they get. They like the pity they get. They like whatever this this affliction in their life brings back towards them from other people. Some people like to just stay the way they are. Physically, that's true. And emotionally, spiritually, particularly, it's true. Some people understand that they're, that they're separated from God. And they're perfectly content to stay that way. They don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be, they don't want to be a, a kind of taken out of their own selfish sort of world that they live in. They're perfectly content where they are. They don't want to be helped. They don't want to be healed. And Jesus comes along and offers new life to them. And, and hey, listen, they're comfortable the way they are. So there's got to be this level of desire. I think Barclay is right here. There's got to be some level of desire. Jesus is just probing this man. Do you want to be healed? Is this actually what you really want? Are you content to be where you are and who you are? And Jesus speaks to him and this man answers. And he says something interesting. You would think, you would think, my thought is, this guy would say instantly what? Yes, yes, I want to be healed. He doesn't. He just simply explains his situation. Sir, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. Can you imagine the roller coaster this man's been on for these years, right? I mean, this roller coaster, every time the water moves, he's struggling to get to the water. And he can't get there. And every time he's beaten out by somebody else and he's depressed and discouraged, again, the water bubbles and there's hope. And it's just back and forth, back and forth. But the way he answers Jesus is interesting. There's absolutely no indication in what he says that he expects anything from Jesus. No indication. He doesn't expect anything from Jesus. He doesn't expect that Jesus can help him. He doesn't know who Jesus is. We're going to see that in a minute. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that this man who's speaking to him has anything to offer him to help, except perhaps, what? Some help getting into the water, right? That's all he sees. Here's a man speaking to me. He's probably not been spoken to by anybody with any compassion for a very long time. Here's a man that's speaking to me. Maybe he can get me to the water faster. That's all this guy's got on his mind. That's it. No sign that he has faith in Jesus. No signs that he has hope in Jesus. No sign that he even recognizes Jesus. And Jesus says nothing else to him except get up, take up your bed, and what? Walk. Strange thing to say to a man that's been 38 years on his back or stomach or side or whatever he was on. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he do it? I mean, the only explanation is that he's moved by this man's condition. He's, he has compassion on this man. There's no sign of faith. There's no sign of value. There's no sign that, that Jesus saw in him something special. He just walks up to the man. He, he, he sees the, the horrible condition he's been in, and he has compassion on him. We saw that last week, right, with Lazarus. Jesus walks up, and he's moved with compassion at grief and death and suffering. And he's moved here again with compassion at this, this poor man who's been there. And so Jesus doesn't lecture him. He doesn't give him some long sermon. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't talk to him about religious things. He just has a heart full of compassion, and he says, get up, get up, pick up your bed and walk off. And that's exactly what this guy does. Gets up, picks up his bed, walks off. Now, I don't know, I imagine it was probably more dramatic than that, right? You've been laying on your side for 30 years, 38 years. Somebody tells you to do that, and you get up, and all of a sudden your legs work, and all of a sudden you can run and jump and move I imagine he ran and jumped and moved. And everybody certainly would have been amazed at what they saw happen on this particular occasion. But this, is, this miracle is much bigger than this man. It's not particularly even about him. It's really about Jesus exposing legalism and spiritual arrogance. And it's about him confronting 
the religious leaders, which this event is going to spark. And I think that's exactly what Jesus intended. But beside that, the miracle is remarkable because this man is lost and he has no idea who Jesus is. There's no evidence of faith. He doesn't have any belief that Jesus could heal him. He didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus sought him out. He has done absolutely nothing to merit this healing. He's just been absolutely the recipient of pure grace, right? Isn't that what it is? It's a complete, utterly passive recipient of the free grace of Jesus Christ. It's a sovereign act of mercy, sovereign act of grace, a sovereign act of compassion. Why did Jesus choose this man? I don't know. We don't have any clue why he chose this man. And he did. The Bible tells us at once he's healed. Up, up and at it he goes. Let me just give you a quick little side note here. This man is apparently the only invalid by this pool that Jesus heals. Isn't that interesting? Here is the God of the universe who has all power, who clearly can heal what's wrong. He walks into a multitude. He walks over to one man, tells him to get up, walk, pick up your bed and go. And then Jesus fades out of the scene. And he leaves every other invalid there. Think about that for just a moment. What kind of thoughts does that spark in your mind? He walks past all of these invalids to heal one and then leaves. Clearly, uh, Jesus was not a a proponent of the modern prosperity gospel, right? That God uh, expects and desires for everyone to be happy, healthy, and healed instantly. It's not Jesus' attitude. He comes after one guy and he leaves. Can Jesus be charged with evil for healing one guy and leaving everybody else there? Was that wrong? Was it evil? Think about it. I mean, that's not an easy question, is it? Was it evil? Can he be charged with it? Is he unjust to heal one and not heal all? Is he unjust to pour grace on this one man and to not on the others? Is he obligated, another way of saying it, if he chooses to heal one, is he obligated to heal all? Must God do such things? The answer clearly is answered by his actions, and the answer is No, he is not obligated. And no, he is not unjust. He knows exactly what he's doing. How do we make sense of this? What's the deal here? Well, it makes sense when you understand what was the purpose for which Christ came. Christ, the Bible tells us, came the first time to accomplish redemption. That was why Christ came. He did not come primarily in his first incarnation. He did not show up here primarily to heal all of the sicknesses and diseases of all of God's people. He came primarily to accomplish redemption. He healed some people along the way as it served his purposes along the road to the cross. But he did not come primarily to eradicate disease and bring ultimate healing the first time. The Bible says that Christ is going to return... And when he comes back the second time, he comes for that explicit purpose to bring ultimate and complete and final healing to all of his people, to eradicate every disease and every disability and every infirmity and every trace of sin in this sin-cursed world. He's coming back to accomplish that, but he didn't come the first time to do that. He came to go to the cross and accomplish redemption. He came to save the souls of his people. He'll come back to make them whole later. During the first time that Christ was here, healing was the exception and not the rule. Let's just say it that way. It was the exception and not the rule. And that's the case here. Well, you'd think, you would think, you would think this guy jumping around, hopping around, carrying his bed, you would think everybody in town would be just going nuts with excitement, wouldn't you? I mean, imagine that. Imagine if that happened in the environment here. You know, somebody gets wheeled in in a wheelchair. Jesus comes walking through. All right, that would be remarkable in of itself. But if we lived in his day and says, get up, and the guy gets up and starts running around. 
We would celebrate, I hope, right? You would think that that would be cause for celebration for everybody, particularly those who represented God. But unfortunately, those who represented God on this day did not really represent God. They represented themselves. And so they are less than impressed. John reports, verse 9, that they initiated an investigation into this miracle. Now, the, the day was the Sabbath. Oh, that changes everything. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Well, who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who he was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Oh, so John gives us the key to the whole narrative here. This all took place on what day? The Sabbath. Jesus violated the Sabbath. Do you think Jesus had lost his calendar? They got confused about what day it was. He knew exactly what day it was. He could have healed. This man had been like this for 38 years. He'd be in the same shape the next day. But Jesus goes on the Sabbath and he heals him on the Sabbath intentionally. For Jews, the Sabbath is Saturday, the last day of the week, 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday. That's the Sabbath. And this was when this took place. And you understand the Sabbath goes back to the creation story in Genesis. God created the world in how many days? Six. And on the seventh day, the Bible says he rested from his creative activity. And the Lord then, as we trek our way through the Old Testament, he declares the Sabbath holy. He, he enshrines it, so to speak, in the Ten Commandments and commands his people to honor and to respect the Sabbath. And it was in, and the Sabbath was to be a blessing to his people. It was to be a day for them to, to rest from their normal work and to be able to worship and rest and give thanks to the Lord for what he's done. It was a gift to his people. But what had happened is by the time we get to the first century, these religious leaders have taken the Sabbath and they've twisted it and turned it and piled onto it a million different rules and regulations so that what God intended to be a blessing for His people for rest and worship had become the worst burden that they faced all week. And that's what had happened. It, uh, these religious legalists had taken a very simple provision of God, cease your work for one day a week to rest and worship me. And they piled onto it thousands upon thousands of regulations. Just a, just a list, okay? Imagine what it would like to be like to try and keep this list. And this is just a, a little small uh, example of 39 categories of forbidden things that you could not do on the Sabbath. Um, you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your house on the Sabbath. There were certain objects that you could pick up and put down, but you could only do that in certain places. You couldn't carry a load heavier than a dried fig, Whatever a dried fig weighs. You can't carry anything heavier than that. And now, if, it, if the object weighed half of what a dried fig weighs, then you could carry it twice. That's how this worked. You could eat nothing larger than an olive. Even if you bit into your olive and you ate half of it and realized it was rotten and spit it out, too bad, that counted as half. Your half was up. You only have half an olive left. If you were reaching to grab food and the Sabbath suddenly overtook you, it turned Sabbath while you were reaching to grab food, you had to instantly drop your food. Because if you didn't, if you pulled back your arm with the food, what were you doing? You were carrying a load and violating the Sabbath. A tailor, if that was your trade, you couldn't carry a needle on the Sabbath. You know why? Well, you might see something ripped and be tempted to mend it. So you couldn't carry a needle. Carried a needle? 
you violated the Sabbath. You couldn't buy or sell anything. You couldn't wash laundry on the Sabbath. Did I hear an amen out there somewhere? I thought so. Couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath. My son would say amen to that. Women couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Go figure. Violate the Sabbath if you looked in the mirror. Why could a woman not look in the mirror on the Sabbath? I'm I'm, I'm wading into, you know, dangerous waters here. Well, she might look in the mirror and she might see a gray hair in her hair and be tempted to pluck it out. That would be work. That would be violating the Sabbath. If you had false teeth, you couldn't wear them. On the Sabbath, that would be carrying a, carrying a burden larger than a dried fig. Um, so not many people smiled in that condition. Um, you couldn't sow, you couldn't plow, you couldn't reap, you couldn't grind, you couldn't bake, you couldn't sift, you couldn't shear, you couldn't spin, you couldn't knead, you couldn't weave, you couldn't separate two threads because that would be tying or untying. Can you imagine, can you imagine trying to, to keep all of those rules? I mean, every time you moved, you'd be thinking, am I violating the Sabbath? Am I violating the Sabbath? It was a burden that nobody could carry. Nobody could carry it. Except the religious leaders who had made it and who could master it and could at least in public make it look like they kept it all the time. It was a way to squish everybody else and exalt themselves. That's what legalists do. And that's what spiritual pride tends to do all the time. And so they had elevated all these man-made traditions and they had made them equal with God's Word. And so they, uh, they, they are furious. Jesus, this man has come in and he's violated the Sabbath. But before they're furious with Jesus, they're furious with the man. Get this. This is incredible, isn't it? The, 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 this man is healed. They bring him in and they interrogate the man. He's been, he's been an invalid for 38 years. And not one shred of compassion or joy for this man. They bring him in. They say nothing about his healing. Nothing. They don't even they act like it didn't even happen. The only thing they say to him is what? That's illegal. You're breaking the rules. You can't carry your mat. Think about the, the foolishness of that. This, 38 years this man has been desperate. 38 years. They have not one shred of joy over his healing. All they've got is, you're breaking our rules. You're breaking our rules. That's what legalism does. That's what it does. These Jews are the religious leaders. That's who they are. They had no care or concern for this man whatsoever. All they cared about was their stupid rules, their only precious law. It's against the law for you to pick up your bed and you carry it. Two things that happen. A miracle beyond miracles and a Sabbath violation. And all they can see is one and not the other. D.A. Carson says this. In religious matters, there are none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. And he's right. And these men were so certain that they understood what was going on here. They were so certain. They knew what the important matter was. It was a violation of God's law. So they interrogate this man and he says to them, hey, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. That's great. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. So we're just starting to get some insight on this man, right? I mean, you'd think if somebody walks along, and says, get up your bed and walk and you get up your bed and walk, you would at least be interested in finding out who the guy was, right? You, maybe a name, something, maybe a thank you, maybe anything. But not this guy. 
He gets up, starts running around. He doesn't bother to ask his name. There's no immediate gratitude. There's no immediate worship. It's going to be such a contrast when we get to chapter 9 and see someone else who gets healed, how he responds compared to this guy. This guy has no regard whatsoever for the man who's just healed him. He doesn't bother to find his name, no devotion, no worship, no gratitude, nothing. He just runs off on his own. And apparently, in the commotion, Jesus withdrew. Why would he withdraw? Because what else is around that pool? A whole bunch of other invalids who want the same thing this man had. And Jesus isn't interested in putting on a show. So he fades out of the scene. Verse 14, listen. Jesus finds the man later. Afterward, we don't know how long afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Then the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus that healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus heals this man. He fades into the scene. All this plays out. Later on, Jesus seeks the same man out in the crowded temple, and he finds him, and he says to him, Look, you're healed. And he says simply this, Stop sinning so something worse doesn't happen to you. Being an invalid for 38 years is pretty bad. Physically, there's not a whole lot more that's worse than that. And so Jesus says to him, Look, you had a really bad problem for 38 years. That you're aware of. You've got an even worse problem that you're not aware of. It's called sin. This 38-year invalid issue that you've got, all that does is affect your body, and all that can do is take you into, I mean, uh, ultimately to your physical grave. But you've got another affliction that you're not aware of. It's called sin, and it has the ability to work well beyond the grave to ultimately damn your soul. And if you don't deal with that issue, then this other incident is rather incidental in your life. What a sad and pathetic scenario it would be for an invalid who's been an invalid for 38 years to be miraculously healed, only to have a few years die and go to hell. That's what Jesus is warning him about. He isn't content to just deal with the man's body. He also comes at what? This man's soul. He wants him to understand there's more at stake here than just your body. There's a soul. There's a soul. And you've got a worse problem there than you had in your body. And he tells him, he, he, it's, it's a simple call to what we call repentance. Just simply saying to this man, you need to turn from your sin. Turn from your sin and repent. It's a gospel call. Repent of your sin. Trust me. Do that so that something worse doesn't happen. What's the something worse that he's talking about? Final judgment, eternal hell. That this man would have to pay in himself the due price, the wages for his sin, eternal death, separation from God. Remarkable that Jesus does this with this man. He finds him. He's not content to just deal with the body. He ultimately is after this man's soul. Remarkable. Jesus comes to him and gives him this call, this personal call to repentance, to turn from his sin and trust him. And you would think this man would say at this point, oh, thank you. What does he do? Here's where we get to the heart of this man's heart what does he do the man went away and he told the jews that it was jesus who healed him he has the opportunity to turn to christ and what does he do he goes the other way he goes back to the corrupt religious leaders and he says hey guys hey guys i know who it is now it's that guy over there that's who healed me he knows they hate jesus 
He knows they're after Jesus. He knows they want to come after him for violating the Sabbath. So what does he do? He rats him right out. That's what we used to say in school. I don't know if that still works or not. He sells him down the river. Maybe that's a way of saying it. This man is looking out for number one. He wants to get back in good with the religious leaders. He has no concern for Jesus Christ. None. None. No loyalty to Jesus. No gratitude to Jesus. All he wants is to get back in with the religious leaders. And so he makes a tragic, tragic choice. And we ask ourselves, how is it possible for someone to receive so much from Christ and yet reject him? Like this man does. I don't know. But most of the people who Jesus healed made the same choice. He healed multitudes. He healed multitudes during his ministry. And by the time we get to the cross, there's only about 150 who are still hanging around following him. Most of the people who were recipients of his miraculous grace did what this very man did. They walked away from him. Today, people are all around us who are recipients of God's grace in a million different ways who have no regard for Jesus Christ or God. Don't even stop to think about it. Verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I'm working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Pastor Frank's going to talk about that next week. But Jesus says something remarkable to these guys. You've got all these Sabbath laws built on this idea of work, all these things that you can't do. And it also goes back to, to the creation story where my father created in six days all that you know and he rested on the seventh day. And Jesus is saying, guess what? Even when he was resting, he was still working. The Bible only tells us that Jesus stopped his creative, I mean that God stopped his creative activity on the seventh day. It doesn't tell us he stopped everything, does it? Think about what would happen if God stopped working, stopped doing everything that he does. Everything that he just created would implode in a second. He continued his sustaining work. He continued his his work of mercy and grace and protection and sustaining of the universe. he, He kept right on doing that, right on through the Sabbath. The only thing he stopped was his creative work. And Jesus is saying, you knuckleheads. My father kept right on working through the Sabbath, and so do I. And you know that just made them want to rip their eyeballs out, right? Why? Because they were spiritually proud, arrogant legalists. Let me give you a quick list. Just going to show it to you. I'm not going to talk about it, but for a second. Of what it looks like. What are some of the characteristics of arrogant legalists? These don't even need explanation because you saw it in the text. Arrogant legalists, they lack humility. They're proud and they're arrogant. When you encounter them, you see it, you sense it, you hear it, you know it. They also lack a genuine compassion for people. No compassion in these guys, right? None. They couldn't care less about this man's condition. All they cared about was their own stupid rules and the fact that he wasn't keeping him. They know God's word, but they don't understand what it really means. These guys were experts at the Old Testament, experts at it. They were the theologians, but they hadn't a clue what what it meant. They focused heavily on the externals and couldn't care less about internals. And Christ was the opposite. He held this man's body, but he was ultimately more concerned about his soul. And they have a judgmental attitude. I did a funeral yesterday for a lady who's been a neighbor to my family for 35 years. 
grew up with her kids. The youngest son was just a couple years older than me, so I um, have known him my whole life since I was six. And I probably have, other than just one quick uh, pass by about five or six years ago, I've, I've had no contact with him for over 25 years. Um, happened to be walking into Bilo the other day and bumped into him in the entryway. We talked for a while. I've had several conversations with him this week. Just a, a super neat guy. It was fun to catch up with somebody from that far back. Um, but as we talked, we, our conversation turns towards matters of faith in various ways. And it was clear to me that in, in his life, he's run up on those kind of people more often than he's run up against any other kind of Christian. And it had so seasoned the way that he viewed Christianity, God, the Word of God, any of those subjects. The legalism and the spiritual arrogance that he had seen and experienced had poisoned him and and built up an immunity to the gospel. And I saw so vividly in my conversation with him this week the absolute the reason why God hates spiritual arrogance because that's what it does to lost people not to mention what it does to the people who live it it's destructive on all fronts and I'm ashamed to say that there are probably people who've crossed my path at various points in my life who encountered an arrogant legalist who encountered somebody who really didn't care much about them who had no compassion for where they were or what they were struggling with, who only cared about advancing his own agenda in their life. Somebody who really wasn't concerned enough to stop and say, hey, listen, do you really want to be healed? And I wonder if there are people who cross your path that walk away feeling the same way. When people encounter you, what do they see? Do they see the mercy and grace and humility and compassion of Jesus? Or do they see someone who's just got a bunch of rules they want to push on them, an agenda that they want to advance in their life, rules that they want to point out that the person is broken? So it's a hard question to answer. It really is. It's a painful question to ask ourselves because I suspect if you've walked with Christ very long, you've seen the roots of this kind of spiritual arrogance creep up in your life. And that draw toward legalism is like a magnet that pulls you and sucks you in. I pray that God would help us all to see it this morning. Help us to see it very vividly, particularly if it's manifesting in our lives right now. you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, just like this man, there's nothing in you to merit what he can do for you or would do for you. But the only question that matters this morning for you is, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want Jesus Christ to invade your life and do for you what no one else could ever do? Do you want that for yourself? Do you want that? If you want it, he stands before you today and he holds out his hands and he says, listen, stop sinning, repent, turn to me, I will heal you. Abandon your old life and turn to me and I will give you everything that you could possibly ever need and much more. I will change you forever. The offer is yours. Will you come? Will you be healed? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for this story. It's much more than a story. It's your word. It's much more than just an interesting thing to think about. You have preserved this for us. 
for people like us, for specifically us, for this day, for us to hear, for those who've come here today to hear and to be exposed to. And you've done that with a very clear purpose, just like you had that day you walked up to that man around the pool. I suspect in this room that there are roots of spiritual pride and arrogance that could be discovered. Only by your Holy Spirit revealing it to us will we see it. Because our pride will blind us otherwise. And so we pray for ourselves and we pray for one another right now, God, that by your Spirit you would open our eyes to the roots of this in our lives. Places where we lack humility. Places where we are judgmental. Places where we think we know everything there is to know about your Word, but in reality are just ignorant of what you really mean. Places where we lack utter compassion for human beings. Places where we treat others with less than respect just because they're not at the place where we are. Open our eyes to it, God. Open our eyes to it and break our hearts for it. Help us to destroy it in our lives so that it won't corrupt us and others we come into contact with. May we be vessels of your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your kindness, particularly on those who are desperate and lost. And for that man or woman who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, I pray that the question you ask that man would echo in their hearts today. Do you want to be healed? That their answer would be, yes, Lord, I want it. That they would turn to you right now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.